Well, today, as Andrew has just said, we return to the greatest sermon that was ever preached, that is the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5 to 7. And let me remind you where we're up to. Jesus is illustrating that the disciples must have a law-keeping righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's illustrating to them how to have such a righteousness. For the scribes and the Pharisees looked at the law, but not with a real desire to keep it. They looked at the law in a way to appear to keep it, while in fact not keeping it. For there was no real desire from the heart to keep it. And so how they looked at the law was always to find the minimum requirement. Always to look for the loophole. Always to look to how little they had to do and how much they could get away with doing. Whereas the disciples of Jesus, they were to produce supernatural good works that showed that God was at work in them, that a transformation had happened to their lives. And so they were to look at the law also, but they were to look for the maximum applications of the law rather than the minimum requirements of the law. To make the point, Jesus has spoken of the law of murder in chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And then he has moved on to the subject of adultery in chapter 5, 27 through to 30. And then divorce, which is a continuation of the adultery one in verses 31 and 32. And we come today to the whole issue of oaths. Now to understand the implication and the applications of this law and the teaching of Jesus, we must start understanding ourselves. For our grasp of the truth, our ability to communicate it to others, our relationships based on such communication is all seriously diminished by the very sad truth about ourselves that we're all liars. That's the problem. We lie in many ways, but three I draw your attention to. Firstly, from the heart. Secondly, from the tongue, and thirdly, because of the enemy. You see, we're liars from the heart because, as the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things, and who can understand it? And Jesus taught that out of the heart of man comes, amongst other things, deceit, in chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel. That is, lying is not foreign to me. Lying is natural to me. I don't actually have to be taught to tell lies. I've never met the parent who has taught their child purposely to tell lies. You know, little Johnny, when you get to school, make sure you lie to the teacher. It's just not a lesson that you ever hear. In fact, most parents are struggling to get little Johnny to ever tell the truth. Whatever you do, I don't mind what you've done. It's all right. I know you set grandma alight. I know you pushed grandpa off the cliff. But just tell me the truth. That's all that matters. Is much more likely to be the story than, I want to tell you how to tell lies. The first thing you need to do is look people straight in the eyes. Don't, you just don't tell people because it is natural to us to be liars. Very sad truth about our hearts. And James located the same problem in terms of our tongue. He says in James chapter 3, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Given our heart, given our tongue, 
It's little wonder that lies and falsehood are so common. I've seen very few academic study and research into this area of human nature, but I do remember reading one from California that always, well, confirmed my prejudices, showed me the Bible was yet again true, etc., which demonstrated by recording people talking over a two-week period that on average they lied once every eight minutes. That was the average, but of course they're Californians, they're not us, you know, I mean, you expect strange things in California, don't you? Though I suspect our record wouldn't be all that much different. But add to it the enemy, the enemy of every human, Satan the devil, of whom Jesus taught in John's Gospel chapter 8, he has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's not surprising, therefore, that we can't trust each other's words. Now, one of the ways to bolster our believability with each other is by using oaths. If we all told the truth all the time under every circumstance, we'd never need to use an oath. But we don't. We frequently tell lies and can't be trusted. And so one of the things we do is we give oaths. It's a declaration of the willingness to be punished if our words prove to be untrue. And so, you know, may God strike me dead if I tell an untruth. Or may God strike me down if I don't keep my word and fulfill my promise to you. Or I call it upon my mother's tomb to witness that my words are faithful. You know, my, my, on, on, the, on the sacred nature of my mother's heart, I am promising to you that I'm telling you the truth. Now, we read in the Old Testament that God, being opposed to all lies and all falsehood, lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord, it says. He does not make promises himself without keeping them because he is the faithful God. It's the, the very character and nature of God that he keeps his word and That's one of the things that marks him out from all the other gods. He is a fundamentally covenant, contract-keeping God who gives his word and keeps his word. And he wishes his people to exhibit the same faithfulness, the same reliability, trustworthiness, truthfulness. I've printed on the back of our outlines in today's talk some of the passages of Scripture that I just draw your attention to here. In Leviticus 19, we read, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. It's interesting to see how you are to swear, but you swear by his name, but you mustn't swear falsely by my name. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you shouldn't vow than that you should vow and not pay. Or Genesis 22, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you. Now notice the emphasis on these passages. It's to keep your word, to honour your oaths, 
to fulfil your vows. Better not to vow than to make a vow and not keep the promise. And all the more as you fear and honour God, for there's no other name by which God's people could swear than the name of God. In fact, God himself swears by his own name, for there's no one greater by which he can swear, and there is nothing greater by which he can swear. But swearing oaths for the Pharisees had become an art form of minimising the law. They had worked out all kinds of ways where they'd be able to lie and make false promises with impunity. And this is what Jesus is challenging in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. They didn't want to obey the law of God, and so they sought ways and means of appearing to obey it, while in fact avoiding its requirements completely. Uh, I remember going on a diet. Uh, I've only ever done it once, really, although I think it's, it's time again, although I best not say it, my wife is here today. So... But there was a time I went on a diet and I was only allowed three pieces of fruit a day on this diet. Now, I love fruit, especially bananas, especially bananas on breakfast. And so I especially went and bought and chose the largest bananas that were available. Bananas that were twice as big as normal so that I could get as much banana as I possibly could while still staying within the law of only three pieces of fruit a day. Now that is classic Pharisaism, isn't it? I appear to keep the rules, but in fact the way I keep the rules totally undermines the purpose for which the rule has been given. Their technique was one of emphasising God's name rather than being faithful to the truth. They felt at liberty to say and promise anything provided they just didn't use God's name in the vow. They were not interested in what the Old Testament was interested in, namely telling the truth and keeping their word. They were only interested in avoiding oaths in the name of Yahweh. The key to them was, did you swear by God? If so, you must keep your word. But if it's by anybody or anything else, well, then it's not as binding upon you. You could swear by heaven and not keep the oath. But if you swore by the God of heaven, well, you'd have to keep your oath. Consequently, their way of avoiding was by avoiding God's name. They'd swear by anything, but especially things that were really close to God, but not God. I mean, there's no point swearing by my cat or by my pet white mouse or something like that. I I need to swear by something that's worth swearing by. And so I need it up there with God, but I mustn't use God. So by the heavens, or or, or by the temple, or by the altar, or by the... So something really that sounds like I'm swearing by God, but not actually God, and certainly not Yahweh. And so by emphasising the name by which to swear, instead of the importance of keeping their word, they learnt to avoid the name of God in their swearing and keep telling lies. Now you can see this by looking over at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. Just turn over with me a few pages to chapter 23. 
where again the Pharisees are in mind as you read verses 16 following. Matthew 23, and I'm picking it up at verse 16, it's page 999 if you're a page number person. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound to keep his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So these kind of subtle distinctions as to what you can swear by and get away with and what you can't swear by and get away with, it's all nonsense. It's lawyers at their very, very worst. And so Jesus cuts right through it. The disciples were to be different to the Pharisees. They were to obey God's word. And this is a huge difference. It's a a quantum leap difference. It's a complete difference. Because the Pharisees, they were such legalists that everybody was impressed by them. They could run out case laws and rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that. They could make sign and subtle distinctions. They could argue the law and they were insistent on everybody keeping it their way and they could accuse you if you ever ever broke the law and they would actually take you into, into trouble and punishment because you didn't keep the law. But their whole method of law keeping was aimed to avoid what the law was about. And Jesus just like like knife through a hot, hot butter, just dispenses with the whole framework that they have created and goes to the very heart of what law-keeping is because it's the transformed heart of the Christian person who is to keep the law and bring glory to their Father who is in heaven. So they were to obey the law from the heart, genuine in reality, not in show or in pretense, not minimising it by casuistry, but maximising its intention and applying it to the full. So Jesus follows the Old Testament teaching in verse 34 when he says, do not take an oath. I mean, here's the advice of Ecclesiastes 5. Better not to vow than to make a vow and keep it. Or Deuteronomy 23, verse 22, if you refrain from vowing, you'll not be guilty of sin. And he attacks in verses 34 and 35, taking oaths by God or yourself. For swearing by heaven or by earth or by the city was really swearing by God, don't be fooled. And swearing by yourself or by your head was powerless, so you couldn't change anything. You have no authority more than your heart. Rather, the disciples of the kingdom of God are to be reliable truthful, faithful, trustworthy people who, in a sense, don't need to give an oath. They simply say yes and no, for their yes means yes and their no means no. That's all that's needed from a disciple of Jesus. There's no need for the disciple of Jesus to bolster their words with oaths because they intend to keep them. 
and they'd rather not give an oath and fail. As James wrote, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by the earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. Here then is the teaching of Jesus for his disciples. His teaching for his disciples in each and every generation down to us today. For we are to be the people of our word. That should be one of the key characteristics of a Christian man that he is known to be true to his word. A teller of the truth who will give his word and keep his word even to his own hurt. And who won't play clever words, clever games with our words, but will be faithful, trustworthy, honest people, people of the faithful God who keep faith with their own words. This, of course, will mark us out as very different to all manner of people around about us, won't it? Some years ago, I was struggling with a young man who was always coming to church for supper, not for the church gathering, and arguing why he shouldn't become a Christian and that he didn't need to. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He didn't need forgiveness of sins. And I said, that's nonsense. I said, you go for a week without sinning and come back and tell me that you haven't sinned. And he came back the next week and said, well, that's a bit hard. So I said, okay, let's make it simple. Go for a week without telling a lie. And he said, yeah, well, I could do that. And he came back at supper the next week. And he said, it wasn't fair. I said, what wasn't fair? You got a week, no lies. He said, I started a new job. And I said, so? He said, I'm a real estate agent now. <laughs> How can you do real estate and be a truth teller? A Christian has to. Our politicians, do you trust what they have to say? Well, no. In part because the media forces them to make promises and, of course, the world changes and the policies they've said there need to be changed later on, but in part too because the media forces them to make statements. There's always little escape clauses built into these and so, and they play with words and in part because they just sheer tell us lies, don't they? They're out and out tell lies. And indeed, we've been told, you can't rule the country without telling lies. Well, there is another option, isn't there? There is the option of saying, I can't tell you at this moment. If it's a matter of some form of sensitivity, some form of sensitivity for, in terms of safety and security of the nation or in terms of the economy of the nation, you say, well, I can't tell you. You don't always have to answer everything and you certainly never have to answer in a way that misleads or tells lies. And have you noticed there's hardly anybody in Australia that trusts the politicians? Well, of course not. If you keep telling people lies, why will anybody trust you? And how does a society function when there's no trust in the land? Very badly. That's the problem. You can't build a relationship with someone who tells you lies. Because trust, faithfulness, reliability, trusting the person who's trustworthy is fundamental to every relationship. But before I draw the conclusions for us, notice that Jesus is teaching does provide two problems for which there's actually just one solution. Let's look at the two problems. Problem one, the law courts. 
Should Christians swear oaths in the law courts or at other times when the governments may require it of us? Well, this problem misses the point of Jesus' teaching. He's not interested in oaths as such. He's interested in telling the truth. If somebody requires an oath, then a truth-teller can give it freely in good conscience because he has every intention of keeping his word. And so that you can give an oath if somebody requires an oath from you. You don't need to give an oath because you're a truth-teller. But if the other person requires that because they don't trust you, well, that's, that's their issue, not your issue. There's no reason you can't give an oath. The second problem about God and the apostles, for both God and the apostles swore oaths. If you look on the back here of the, the quotes number five and six on the back of our outline in Hebrews chapter six, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you, referring to that passage in quote number four from Genesis 22. Or again down in number six in Romans chapter one, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, says the Apostle Paul. So clearly God swore oaths and the Apostles swore oaths and yet Jesus and James seem to be saying you shouldn't swear an oath. But again it's missing the point. Jesus is not giving an absolute blanket prohibition. It is a sin to swear an oath. That's not the point. He's attacking the Pharisee casuistry whereby clever wording we can thwart the truth. And he's challenging us to be people of our word. That is, both problems have the same one solution. For whose sake is the oath being given? If you're giving the oath because the hearer requires it, then you do nothing wrong in giving it. But if you're giving the oath to bolster your own words, to cover your lies, to underline false promises, and then you should never be giving an oath. For you should be a person of your word, and an oath is always unnecessary for a faithful person. Hebrews 6 explains it for us on that you know, back of the outline in the fifth quote. Look down to verse 18. The 17 get the sentence. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is before us. It was not for his sake that he swore the oath. It was for our sake. He's always faithful. He would always fulfill his word. But we're going to go through tough times waiting for him to fulfill his promises. We need reassurance and encouragement and for our reassurance and encouragement he gives his oath. So then let's return to the point of Jesus' teaching. That is how the disciples are to be glorifying God by their good deeds. For the disciples of Jesus must live so differently to the norm that when people see their good deeds, they'll not say, gee, they're wonderful people, those disciples, but they will say, God is at work in him because he's not like he used to be, not even like what other people are like. All peoples are liars. It's in our hearts, it's on our tongues, it's part of our captivity to the devil. And so our courts, 
our contracts, our oaths and our vows are all unbelievable in the end. We doubt the media and all salesmen. Nobody trusts our politicians or our leaders. And now people even lie to their own spouses so that the marriage vows they take are a mockery and a joke. Trust has collapsed in the Western world and without trust our society is in deep trouble. Gone is the day when a man's word was his bond. Gone is the day when you could shake hands on a deal and not worry about the lawyers for a week or two filling in the details because you had given your word and you would keep your word. If somebody was true to their word, if somebody lived always by keeping his promises, then frankly, in our culture today, you would stand out like a city on a hill, like a light that can't be hidden. In fact, the person who keeps telling the truth all the time would be like salt in our society. There was a movie which I chose not to watch because it seemed to me pretty degenerate and stupid called Liar Liar a few years ago where a man suddenly got overtaken and had to tell the truth in all circumstances and of course put his foot in it left, right and centre and it's a comedy and you get the point of the comedy but you don't have to be stupid and say everything that is on your head. You can refrain from speaking but the person who does say what is actually the truth is a person who stands out in society as weird and is unacceptable. The disciples of Jesus must be the people of their word, people who always can be relied upon. John Grisham is my aeroplane reading novelist. Whenever I take a long flight, I get a Grisham. And um, it's a good term, page turners. They're short, short little uh, chapters. You can just get there and I can almost get a, a whole Grisham done between here and London. He wrote one called The Last Juror. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a cynical detective discusses a court case with the worldly journalist hero. And the detective says to this journalist that a young crippled man on the jury took a bribe and failed to keep his word in the court. The journalist says, uh, there's no way. The detective said, why, just because he's a crippled he couldn't tell a lie? And the journalist said, no, he's a very devout Christian, so he wouldn't lie. It's kind of stark when you read it in the whodunit. So Grisham, of course, is a Christian. What a testimony to the truth. If a person is a very devout Christian and therefore their word could be relied upon. So that should be. All people are liars, but Christians are to be different at this point. How can we be different like this? Well, James says nobody can control the tongue. How can we deal with the guilt of all our past lies? Well, the answer lies not in the Sermon on Mount, that is the place that challenges us, but rather the answer lies in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For his death we are forgiven all our lies, and by his resurrection his spirit is sent into our lives to change us, that we will live for him. And if you want to know what it means to live for him, well, there's loads and loads of things, but one of them is stop telling lies.
Take them out of your heart. Stop them on your lips. Do not give the devil any say in your life. Be a person of your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, whereby we are forgiven of all our lies. We thank you for his resurrection and the pouring out of your spirit, his spirit, into our lives that we can be born again to live differently. And we would pray, Heavenly Father, that by the power of your spirit, you would keep working in our hearts to remove the lies, the lies we believe ourselves, the lies that we keep speaking to ourselves, the lies that we give to others, the hypocrisy and the falsehoods, Control our tongues, please, Father, by your Spirit, that we will not utter falsehood or make false promises. Remove from us, Father, that desire to shout loud, that desire to swear oaths, that desire to kind of give more credence to our words than our words deserve. Please, Heavenly Father, make us people of the truth, not just the truth of the gospel, but the truth itself that our yes will be yes and our no will be no, and that people will all, in family, in neighbourhood, in street, in, in work, at the office, people will all know that we are the people they can trust because we speak the truth and we keep the truth. And that also, Father, that seeing this, they might glorify not us but you, the Father who has given us forgiveness through the death of your Son, and the Father who has transformed us by the Spirit of your risen Son, that they may see our good works and glorify you, our Father in heaven, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.